Greetings and welcome to Word Magazine. This is Jeff Riddle. I'm the pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia. And in this episode, we're going to continue this ongoing series of reviewing an anti-Calvinistic sermon that was preached by Yankee Arnold, and it's titled The Five Dangers of Calvinism. It's about a 50-minute message. I've done two podcasts where I've covered about the first 21 minutes or so of it, and we'll see how far we can get today. We might be able to finish it. Maybe I'll talk less and let him talk more, <clears throat> but it may take this episode and then one more maybe to finish it up, but we'll see how far we can get. Um, it's been an interesting response to the first two videos. Uh, they both drew quite a few interesting comments and discussion. I was talking to a couple of friends at church on Sunday uh, who noted that they had been following it and that they had appreciated it. Uh, one person in the comments asked, you know, why, you know, uh, did you take this person on, you know, to review? Because this is kind of a low-hanging fruit. It's not the most sophisticated critique of Calvinism. And I had a very specific pastoral reason because a man in my church had been sent a link to this video and he wanted my response as a Calvinistic pastor to it. So, there's kind of a pastoral care um, element to this that that, you know, I'm just sharing my pastoral thoughts mainly with this man. And then whoever wants to overhear it can overhear it um, again. I'm doing this completely extempore. I have not listened to this previously. I'm just going to be responding to it. Uh, so I'm seeing it and listening to it for the first time. I had, you know, looked at the first 10 minutes or so. And since then, I'm, I'm flying blind. And the only thing I have in front of me, I've got my my Bible. I love this uh, Cambridge Turquoise Bible. Uh, I also got a copy of my book, um, The Doctrines of Grace and Introduction to the Five Points of Calvinism. And I would commend that for anybody uh, who's uh, interested in the topic. And I also brought with me this time a copy of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, I thought maybe at some point I might read the chapter on the perseverance of the saints because it seems like that's been an item that's been consistently confused in this presentation. And I've got my uh, notepad here that's to take a few notes uh, as we listen. So without any further ado, uh, let me pull up on the screen the video that we have been uh, reviewing. Here it is. Um, and this is Yankee Arnold on the five dangers of Calvinism. And we're going to pick it up here at the uh, 21 minute and 57 second mark. I did return the speed, the playback speed to um, normal, I think. And let's see if we can, um, let's see if we can listen to this together. A lost man can get money. What can you do that a lost man can't do? See, that's why God's the one who knows who's saved. And he saves every man that believes his word. How do I know I'm saved? Not by my life, but by the word of God. God says if I... How do I know I'm saved? Not by my life, but by the word of God. Well, in part, we would, we would affirm that. Yes, uh, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. But again... One of our consistent uh, critiques is that the Bible also teaches, starting in Ephesians 
uh, chapter 2 and verse 10, that those whom God has saved, he has also foreordained uh, good works for them. Uh, they are Christ's workmanship, and they are created in Christ for good works, which he has foreordained, uh, determined ahead of time for them to do. And so the good works are not the thing that saves a man, but they are the things that accompany salvation. So uh, I was kind of thinking I was going to say that that the five dangers of Calvinism were going to be um, something like um, taking each one of the five points and refuting each one of them. We, we're, um, you know, a third, more than a third of the way into the message, nearly halfway through the message, actually. And we still haven't really had an articulation of what the five dangers are. But uh, let's keep listening and um, see if we can figure it out. Trusted him, he would give me what kind of life? Eternal life. He that believeth on me hath, present tense, hath right now everlasting life. I believe that. 55 years ago in a little old living room, God saved me that day, that night, that moment, I had eternal life. And I didn't look at my life to see whether or not I had it. I knew then I had it. I didn't have to wait a, a, a six months or a year to see, well, have I got enough works in my life to give me confidence? Well, I know I really meant it. No, no, I was saved that night. Calvinists definitely believe that salvation, justification by faith is instantaneous. It is a work of God. And the moment that God justifies someone by faith, they are saved. And as I, I read, I think last time from John chapter 10, no man is able to pluck the converted man out of the father's hand. Um, but we do believe that uh, God uh, also teaches through the scriptures that the man who is saved uh, will uh, desire to obey Christ. As Christ said again in John 14, verse 15, that uh, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Questions and doubts about it. The word of God doesn't change. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He did not say, did you turn from your sins? Did you commit your life to Christ that you may know that you have eternal life? Or we go by what was written, that you know you have eternal life. Look at the next statement here. Faith is not the gift. Every man has the ability to trust, to believe or not to believe. Where you put your faith is your choice. If God gave special, special faith to a man to believe in Christ, did he also give a man the special faith to believe in Buddha, Mohammed, Confucius, or any other of the false religions? Don't they believe in their stuff? Well, did God give them the no, faith? No, because to those things would be unbelief. Those things would not be saving faith. Those things would be unbelief. Uh, we believe that it is saving faith that comes as a gift from God, uh, not by works, lest any man should boast. And so, no, we don't believe God gives faith in Buddha or faith in um, agnosticism or faith in Hinduism. That's unbelief. That's Those aren't separate categories. There's faith and there's uh, unbelief. There's belief and there's unbelief. And it's God who gives belief. He gives saving faith to those who believe. To believe that? If he gave the faith to believe in Christ, well, who gave him the faith to believe in the other? Where'd that come from? Every man Again, has Romans 3 is very important where Paul says, 
that there is none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who does good. There's no one who seeks after God. And so those will all be examples of unbelief, not belief. The ability to place his faith wherever you want to. You can place your faith in Peter. I mean, I heard him on the radio and yeah. YouTube. I mean, he's a, he's, a, he's a famous man. So let's just all put our trust in Peter Motto. How do you know you went to heaven? Peter said I was. I guess Peter is maybe a, a pastor, a minister there in the church. I don't really get the background for the joke, but um, again, we, we, as uh, unfortunately, uh, I think in this type of genre of uh, religiosity, we see a lot of levity, laughing, joking, etc. Or would you rather say, how do you know you're going to heaven? Because Jesus says I was. So you go by what God's word has to say. Now look at the next verse. In Ephesians 1, 4 and through 5, as we read this verse a while ago, according as he hath chosen us in him. See those two little words that are bold there? Because they have a tendency to want to leave out those words. And he says, chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. In other words, when God designed this plan of salvation, he did not ask us into the, you know, into heaven to seek our counsel. He didn't need it. God's the one that designed this. And he says, I'm going to save a man by faith. I'm going to send my son into the world. And he's going to pay for the sins of all the world. And whosoever in the world that will believe in Christ will be placed in Christ. So God... But the problem is no one will believe Christ unless God first changes his heart. Now... I want to say um, we're halfway through the message and he read Ephesians 1, 4 at the beginning. And I sort of said in the beginning because I did, really didn't know what I was listening to. I didn't know when he was going to do this. But I am glad that he's actually at this point, it seems like trying to do some um, scriptural reasoning, uh, some explanation related to Ephesians 1, 4. And he called attention to uh, the preposition, according as he hath chosen us in him, but he really hasn't shown how that would refute uh, the obvious meaning of this. When did this choosing of the elect in Christ take place? It took place before the foundation of the world. And that is uh, what is described in Romans 8, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestinated. And so this is a, an act of God, a sovereign act of God. But anyway, let's listen and let's see if, if he is going to come up with some scriptural reasoning uh, to explain why he thinks this passage should be taken differently than sort of a plain sense reading of it would render. And the plain sense reading is the reading of Calvinism. God, from the foundation of the word, says, I'm going to save all of those who believe and not those who don't believe. You and I are the ones that determine whether or not we're in Christ. See, when I trusted Christ as my Savior 55 years ago, I was... You and I are the ones who determine whether or not we are in Christ. Does that mean, uh, friends, that 
human beings are more powerful than God. We are the one. We determine things for ourselves. Uh, does this match up uh, with what we read about the sovereignty of God in salvation in, in the scriptures? Just think about uh, Romans chapter 9 and consider uh, what Paul says. It's the great chapter in the Bible about the doctrine of election. And the Apostle Paul is describing God's sovereign uh, work in election. And he says in Romans 9, verse 13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion so then it is not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth but of God that showeth mercy let me uh, read again Romans 9 16 so then it is not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth but of God that showeth mercy who's responsible for salvation is it the will of man or is it the will of God? In Christ. And God has chosen all those that are in Christ. But how do you get in Christ? By your personal decision to accept Christ as your Savior. So God has from the beginning chosen to save all of those who believe in Christ. And predetermined. about God's sovereign foreknowledge? This is actually a variety of what is called open theism. God, according to this scheme can foreordain uh, the ministry of Christ, but he doesn't have any idea as to who's going to be in that category. Does God sovereignly know who is going to be saved? Does he sovereignly know who is going to reject? Well, then how is this in any way uh, a refutation of Calvinism? Isn't it better just to take uh, at a straightforward, plain sense reading what the text actually says? predestination, the adoption of his children. And one of these days, these bodies of ours are going to be changed. And we're going to be placed into heaven. That day is coming. That's why he talks about in Ephesians 1.13. We're sealed until the day of redemption, the redemption of these bodies. Romans chapter 8 talks about how that we groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, meaning the transfer the change of these old vile bodies that will be made like unto his glorious body. That day is coming. So look at the air. The air here, God not only chose us, but he also predetermined to save us from the foundation of the world, thus leaving out man's choice. Truth. God chose or determined, predetermined from the foundation of the world to save all those who trust in Christ, who chose to trust Christ, faith alone. He chose those that are in Christ. <clears throat> so that when you read that verse and you hear some preacher try to make something out of that that's not there, you'll know that isn't true. And he has a limited atonement theology. Look at the next question. Yes. Let me pause, let me pause for chosen. just a moment and then we'll move on. Because if he's going to move on and start talking more about his objections to limited atonement. But, but let's just let's just talk once more about this 
uh, theory that he has that the the description that we're given in Ephesians 1.4 about God having chosen us, Paul is addressing the Christians and the church in Ephesus, having chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Was this just a hypothetical choice of a category of those who would be Christians? And poor God didn't actually have the foreknowledge uh, to know who would be in those categories. And he didn't have the power uh, to predetermine, to predestine, to foreordain those who would be in those categories. Um, in, in my book, uh, The Doctrines of Grace and Introduction to the Five Points of Calvinism, uh, I have a little section uh, in the chapter on election where I address uh, what I call uh, objections to um, the Bible's teaching on election, on unconditional election. And I listed nine of these. And the first one on pages 44 and 45 of my book is, does election in the Bible refer to God's elections of individuals to salvation or to something else? And uh, so the first, I respond to three sub arguments under this. The first one is, could the passages that speak of God's choosing refer to the election of nations or believers as an undefined group and not to specific individuals? And I, I respond, scripture clearly assumes that God's sovereignty extends not merely over corporate bodies, but also over individuals. And I cited Proverbs 16:9, Psalm 139, 16, Matthew 10, 30. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 1, 4, he hath chosen us. He was writing to a specific group, the saints of Ephesus, not a generic or hypothetical audience. We should also not forget that groups and nations consist of individuals. It seems odd that some evangelicals who stress the importance of personal evangelism or soul winning will make appeal to this argument, avoiding the most natural interpretation of the text cited above. God chooses individuals for salvation. Second uh, sub-argument here, could these passages refer to God's election or choosing of Christ? And um, he didn't exactly say that, so I'm going to skip over to the third one of these sub-arguments. One might ask, could these passages refer to God's election of believers to sanctification and not salvation? And again, that's not one that he used particularly, so I'll skip over that one. But if you're interested in a Calvinistic counter to this sort of hypothetical uh, salvation, that, that God only hypothetically chose those who would be in Christ rather than God sovereignly foreknowing all things, uh, knowing that the, the, the very hairs on our head are numbered by him. Uh, he knew us before we were formed in the womb, but somehow he 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 his he doesn't know who's going to become a believer, and he has these this amorphous category of those who are in Christ. He doesn't know who's going to be in there. Maybe nobody's going to be in there. Um, that doesn't seem to fit with the sovereignty of a God who has exhausted foreknowledge and who has predestinated those who would be saved. Uh, let's continue from the foundation of the world to save all those that are in Christ to be holy and without blame before him 
The Lord has chosen to save all those who believe on Christ alone for their salvation. It is your faith in Christ that puts you in Christ. So there's no problem with that verse. But if you try to make it say something, you've got to change a lot of verses in the Bible. You've got to take away the plain meaning of John 3.16 in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Because they can't mean what they say. Because they've got to put their twist on it. When you go to the Bible. The plain reading of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is for by grace are you saved through faith. Uh, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God lest any man should boast. It's not the gift of man. There's nothing in there about uh, a man having to exercise his free will and man being sovereign over God's decree. I mean, he's actually saying man's decree, man's will is stronger than God's decree and God's will. Let me just let me just lay another passage alongside. In John chapter one, verses twelve and thirteen, we read this. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, if we stop there, some might say, well, see, yeah, those who receive Christ, they are given the power to become the sons of God. But look then at verse 13 of John chapter 1. Speaking of these persons, believers, he says, which were born, meaning born again, born from above, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How are they born again? Are they born by the will of their flesh? By their free will? No, they're born from above by God. And that seems to be, as I've noted previously, the lacking element in the soteriology is being presented here, and there's a lack of the doctrine of conversion or effectual calling. Maybe we need to read that chapter from the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, we're about at the 27 minute. Let's see if we can get a bit further. O'Reilly well, doesn't know this, but the spin stops here. <laughs> Just my humble opinion. Now look down at the bottom of the page. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14 says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit, belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they read that part where it says, God hath chosen from the beginning to salvation. See that God chose you from the beginning. Don't you feel special? Now, there are some people God didn't choose. That's not what he says. That's leaving out a lot of what this verse says. So look at the top of the next page. Here's the error of how you can take a verse and try to make it say something it doesn't say. God chose to save me from the beginning without any decision being made on my part. Since God knew who he had previously elected, he only had to die for those whom he knew would believe. Because he only gave the gift of faith to those he wanted. Therefore, this irresistible grace dictated that the will of God would be fulfilled. Oh, isn't that wonderful? But it's not true. Look at the truth. The rest of the verse tells you how God chose to save. 
The Lord chose to save all those who were made pure and holy by the Holy Spirit and our belief of the truth. Can't leave that out. God's Word tells us that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Not as a gift. Faith cometh by what? Hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It didn't come as a gift apart from the Word of God. And that's why it says, preach the Word to everybody. So he says, well, Calvinists certainly believe in promiscuously preaching the gospel. And there's nothing that contradicts the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and salvation in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. In fact, it very well affirms it. And as I pointed out last time, this verse, I think, is a problem verse for um, Pastor, uh, uh, Pastor Yankee here because it stresses the importance of sanctification, the importance of God changing a person's life, the, the importance that is spelled out in Ephesians 2.10 that runs counter to the scheme that he's been giving us, that salvation uh, doesn't result in a changed life. Um, so anyways, in no way is uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 in any way contradictory. Yes, we're, we are saved uh, through faith, by means of faith. Faith is the instrument which God uses to save a man. And salvation uh, is by grace through faith. If salvation is by grace through faith, then faith is a uh, is what God gives to be the means to bring about salvation. Verse fourteen says that God called us by the gospel. He says to go to all. Well, we believe in calling. Absolutely, we absolutely believe in calling. But what is calling? Um, let me uh, actually. Uh, go back here so we can get back on the screen. I don't want just looking at the video. I'm using a little different presentation format uh, this time. So, uh, yeah, we believe in calling. So he's going to talk about in First uh, Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians 2.14, wherein to he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is, what is meant here by calling? It's a very important concept in the New Testament. The, the Greek verb is kaleo, uh, calling. And it's mentioned in the golden chain of redemption in Romans uh, 8, verses 29 and 30. Let's just uh, look at that, if we can, briefly. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 29 and 30, uh, wherein the apostle Paul uh, writes the following for whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. And so when we look at this, we see two things God did in eternity past. He foreknew and he predestinated. And then we have two things that God does in real time in the present experience of the believer. First of all, those whom he did foreknow and predestinate, verse 30, them he called. And whom he called, them he justified. So the calling of God and the justification of God happen in a believer's life. The calling means hearing the preaching of the word. Obviously, we believe that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. 
And we need to, this is why we need to preach the gospel. This is the means that God uses. Uh, the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 1, talked about the foolishness of preaching. Uh, it's foolishness to the world, but to them who, who, who believe, it is the wisdom of God in Christ. And so, yes, that's calling. And we believe there is external calling. There are those who hear the preaching of the word. And uh, they, they hear the physical words with their, with their physical ears, but they're not converted. And that's why we believe calling in the sense in which it's mentioned here in Romans 8 and verse 30 and in the way that it's uh, meant or intended in 2 Thessalonians 2.14 is not talking simply about hearing the gospel with the ear, but it's talking about the change that takes place in the heart. And so let me go ahead and uh, I wasn't sure what I might read from this. Like I said, I thought I might read the chapter on the perseverance of the saints, but let me read at least part of the chapter in the second London Baptist confession of faith on effectual calling. And of course we don't believe that the confession of faith is uh, on par with scripture. This is what we call a subordinate standard. Scripture is the primary authority and the confession is underneath it. Uh, kind of like he's using his notes in his presentation. Um, but we believe that this confession is a good art articulation of what the scriptures teach. And it's also full of um, scriptural proof texts. And actually, I, I, I think I put up here. Um, let me see if I can share with you um, the confession of faith. So you can see this online as we look at it. Uh, there we go. And I want to look at chapter 10 of effectual calling. We believe in the effectual calling of God. What is that that's mentioned in Romans 10, uh, Romans uh, uh, verse uh, 8 and verse 30? What is it that's mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 2.13? It is effectual calling. And this is what our confession says based on scriptural proof text. Those whom God hath predestinated unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature, by grace and salvation, by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving to them a heart of flesh, renewing their will. See, their wills are in bondage to sin. That's why they can't believe apart from effectual calling, apart from conversion, regeneration, and by his almighty power, determining that to them that to them that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely being made willing by his grace. See, once we experience regeneration, our wills are renewed. And it's only after that happens that one can freely choose Christ. Let's look, go ahead and look at paragraph two. If this effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature, being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses, 
until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less than that which raised up Christ from the dead. So it's the resurrection power of Christ that takes those who were dead uh, and uh, quickens them. So um, anyways, yes, we believe in calling. We believe we really believe in calling. We believe in the, the, the effectual, efficient calling of God. We believe in conversion. We believe in regeneration. We, in fact, we believe sin is so serious. We must be regenerated by God's power the same power that raised Christ from the dead, uh, the same power of God that called uh, caused Lazarus to come forth from the grave. Uh, that power is necessary to save sinners. And so that's why salvation is not of man's will, not of the flesh, but it is of God. Um, so let's see if we can go back and uh, pick up the teaching once again. All the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Notice the word propitiation, meaning payment, and the words for the sins of the whole world in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. Look what it says. And he is the propitiation, the payment, the satisfaction for our sins. And not for ours only, that's the believers, but also for the sins of what? The whole world. That's in the Bible. I didn't write that verse. I'm not. Okay, let's pause here. Somehow we've gone to First John, uh, chapter two and verse two, uh, which says, "And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world." And so he's presenting this as an objection passage. Uh, to the doctrines of grace. Um, let me just uh, uh, switch over once again. Maybe this will be a little better for, for listening. Um, with respect to this particular verse, this exegesis this verse, this is the first time he's brought it up. He's you know, nearly 30 minutes into the sermon. And so he's using this as a, as a, a proof text, a scriptural argument in favor of uh, general atonement, I guess. And let me just mention again uh, my little book, um, The Doctrines of Grace. And I mentioned that I, I have a little section within the book on responding to nine objections to unconditional election. And one of those was one of the arguments that he made that God only hypothetically had a, had a group, uh, those who are in Christ, but didn't know who the individuals were going to be. Um, and I have another section on limited atonement. And as part of the discussion of limited atonement, um, I uh, uh, address nine what I call objection passages. And actually, one of the passages that I address is 1 John 2.2. 2. And so uh, let me just read, if I can, uh, what I wrote uh, in my little book on 1 John 2.2. 2. And I might just I might just say that the, as a sort of a preface uh, to my a treatment of these objection passages, I wrote the following. I said, many of the objection passages raised against the doctrine of limited atonement relate to the interpretation of various passages using the word all. 
Those who object usually take for granted that the word all in every instance refers to all humanity. When read in context, however, the word all very often refers not to all human beings without exception, but to all the elect. We make this kind of verbal discernment in everyday discourse. One might, for example, read or hear a report like the following on the news, quote, there was an accident involving a single vehicle with four passengers. All were killed, end quote. Upon listening to this report, one does not suppose that all human beings were killed or that all people in the city were killed in the accident. The context makes clear that all refers to all four of the passengers. Knowing the context is key to right interpretation. Many read the Gospels and epistles as universal missives to all humanity without exception, rather than as communication written to particular Christian audiences. This clouds their ability to understand these passages. I continue. This is on page 69 of my book. In addition to misunderstandings about the word all, I, I have a, a, another further discussion. Many also confuse the astonishment expressed in the New Testament over the fact that both Jews and Gentiles, all kinds of men, men from the whole world are being saved. Paul, for example, is staggered with amazement that in Christ, according to Ephesians 3, 6, the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Some confuse this emphasis on the fact that all sorts of men, Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, men and women, have been redeemed with the notion that all men without exception are redeemed. That's universalism or only potentially redeemed, that's Arminianism. And so um, then I went through the, the various passages. Let me just read what I my commentary that I wrote um, on uh, 1 John 2.2. 2. So let's see, 1 John 2.2. 2. This is on page 78 of my little book. Uh, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In context, John is most likely referring to the saving benefits applied both to Jewish Christians like himself and to Gentile Christians, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. The wonder of Jewish believers like John and Paul is that men and women from the whole world have been included in God's plan of redemption through Christ. In Ephesians, Paul can speak of the inclusion of Gentiles as the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets, namely that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel. That's Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. John here wonders at the same reality. And so uh, my response is, that this is John, the Jewish disciple of Christ, apostle of Christ, marveling at the fact that Christ has not only offered up himself a propitiation for our sins as a Jewish Christian, but for the sins of the whole world, for Gentiles, uh, not just for men, but for women, not just for the slave, but for free. 
uh, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles. And, you know, John is consistent. Look at what he said in John 1, 12 and 13. Who does he think saves men? Men are saved not by the will of the flesh, not by the will of man, but by the power of God. And whom does he save? He saves persons from the whole world, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slave and free. Uh, that is what First John 2, 2 is talking about when the word is rightly divided. Um, so uh, let's go back now to the video, hopefully. Hopefully this isn't getting too confusing today. But the author said this, that not only for my sins and your sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Now look at the next verse. Or the statement. Here. Why? If Christ died on the cross and, he, and his, his um, sacrifice on the cross was a propitiation for their sins, then no man would be condemned, right? You would be preaching universalism. You would be preaching that everyone is saved. But that's an incoherent teaching because it doesn't fit with uh, the scriptures like John 3.36. Anyone would want to change what God so clearly states is beyond me. What right does any preacher have to stand in judgment on God and alter his word? The message, the gospel, is how man goes to heaven. Think about the people that have been blinded because they don't think God can save them or put a requirement upon people. You've got to turn from your sins. Well, I'm not ready to do that yet. Well, you're just not ready to be saved. When you're ready to be saved, you'll have to be ready to do this. Listen, I've traveled all across this country and I've listened to preachers all across this country. And they preach and you've got to turn from your sins to be saved. You've got to repent. They say, repent means to turn from sin. Repent does not mean that. Repent is a change of mind. Well, repentance is a biblical concept. And and maybe this would be a good point. I, you know, I, I hate to... Uh, keep stopping and starting but but let's 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 turn to again uh an articulation an interpretation of the bible again the bible is is the primary authority sola scriptura but the confession is simply a subordinate standard like the notes that a minister uses in a presentation or something like that and there is actually also a wonderful little chapter uh, in our confession of faith that addresses uh, repentance and it also addresses saving faith. And chapter 15 of our confession uh, speaks about uh, repentance. And so let me see if I can pull up on the screen again the um, confession of faith here. Let's see if we can go down to chapter 15 of repentance unto life and salvation. Um, and so this is what we read about repentance. And, and you can see here is it, are we teaching that repentance is a work that is required for salvation or is repentance something that comes once a person has received the effectual calling and his nature has been changed and it accompanies faith um, and is part of the redeemed man's response to the good news? Um, so here we go. 
such of the elect that are converted at riper years, having sometime lived in the state of nature and having served diverse pleasures, God in their effectual calling gives them repentance to life. No one repents unless they're converted. Conversion is necessary. Conversion is not the thing that, or, or repentance is not the thing that brings about salvation. It is the effectual calling. It's conversion that brings about salvation. Let's continue. Whereas there is none that does good and does not sin, and the best of men may, through the power and deceitfulness of their corruption, dwelling in them with prevalency of temptation, fall into great sins and provocations. God has in the covenant of grace mercifully provided that believers so sinning and falling be renewed through repentance unto salvation. So paragraph one is talking about uh, the repentance that comes at salvation once a man is converted. Paragraph two is talking about the fact that the person who is a sinner may fall into sin and then he can be convicted of that sin and he can again repent, renewing uh, his commitment unto Christ, renewing and remembering his salvation. Um, look at paragraph three. This saving repentance is an evangelical grace, whereby a person, being by the Holy Spirit made sensible the manifold evils of sin, does, by faith in Christ, humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing well in all things. So now he's going back and talking about what is saving repentance. Saving repentance, again, is the thing that comes, accompanies, comes after effectual calling. It comes after conversion. And then he says in paragraph four, as repentance is to be continued throughout the whole course of our lives upon the account of the body of death and the motions thereof. So it is every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins. Yes, these are not the things that save a man, but a man who is saved and who wants to uh, obey Christ because he loves Christ will, as the old Puritans used to say, engage in habitual repentance. Um, Paragraph five, such is the provision which God has made through Christ and the covenant of grace for the preservation of believers unto salvation, that although there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation to them that repent, which makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. And along these lines, let's go ahead and look at the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Those whom God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit and given the precious faith of his elect unto can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. Doesn't mean that God does not repent of saving uh, those uh, who believe, um, but, but God... Um, um, again, doesn't change his mind about saving the saints, uh, that, that he keeps them. And he continues now, um, <laughs> uh, seeing the gifts of God are, are without repentance, from which source he still begets and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immor immortality. 
And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock by which faith they are fastened upon, notwithstanding through unbelief and temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of their light and love of God may be for a time clouded and obscured from them. Yet he is still the same and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God. Are they kept by their own works? No, they're kept by the power of God unto salvation where they shall enjoy their purchased possession. They being engraved upon the palm of his hands and their names being written in the book of life from all eternity. And then he even says this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father through the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with him, the oath of God, the abiding of his spirit and the seed of God within them and the nature of the covenant of grace from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. And then he talks here more specifically about issues related to um, backsliding, although they may through the temptation of Satan and the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglected, neglected means of preservation fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves Yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. So the Bible teaches the effectual calling. It uh, teaches repentance and faith. And it teaches as well um, the perseverance of the saints. This is a well-rounded, well-orbed biblical theology of salvation. And so, um, I, as I said before, I don't think that Pastor Arnold rightly understands um, Calvin as, Calvinism as a, uh, a system drawn on biblical teaching. Um, it's not a system imposed upon Scripture. It's a system that bubbles up from, emanates from Scripture. Well, let's go back and see if we can go, get a little bit further uh, in the sermon. Here we go. Oops. It means that if you're an unbeliever and you're supposed to be a believer, what do you need to do? Change your mind from not believing. No, God has to change your heart. And then after you have been converted, uh, then only when your will has been renewed, Will you believe and repent? To believe. So when you believe on Christ, you repented. You changed your mind. They say, well, repent means to turn from sin. Wait a minute. God repented. But God didn't have any sins to turn from. I think this is interesting because he's saying repentance is not a change of life. It's a change of mind. But then he, he also says, this seems inconsistent, that People can supposedly be saved, and then he said, bear absolutely no fruit. Um, and so, what is it? What would it mean, according to this construal, to have your mind changed and then not do anything in the rest of your life 
to show your love for Christ by obeying his commandments. So you can have your mind changed, but not your life changed. Um, this seems to be teasing out a distinction that's simply not in the scriptures. Slap him upside the face with a couple of these things. <clears throat> now notice this. You'll notice in Matthew 23 and verse 37, 38, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stoneth them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together? Hold on, it's Matthew 23, verses 37 and 38. Uh, so he's raising this as another objection passage uh, to Calvinism. Even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wing, and you see those in the bowl, and what? Ye would not. How often God said, I would have done this, but you wouldn't. This in no way contradicts Calvinism because we would say, yes, unconverted people, their wills are in bondage to sin. And yes, everyone who rejects Christ does so because of their unbelief and they are not willing. So this is simply a description of the way unconverted people uh, act. And it doesn't address the work of effectual calling that changes the will of men and that enables them to repent and believe or to believe and repent. And so this passage is in no way a defeater for Calvinism. If anything, it demonstrates uh, the ravages of sin. Uh, it, it illustrates total depravity. It illustrates the bondage of the will in the unregenerate. Well, whatever will be, will be. That's not true. Because, you see, it's not like everything is the will of God. Everything is the will of God. No, it's not. It is not. God is not willing that any should perish. So that means nobody's going to perish because it's not the will of God. All right. So he's, he's raising another passage here. He didn't specifically cite it. Um, and uh, basically he's saying that God's will is uh, weak and puny. But what's really strong is man's will. Again, he didn't he didn't um, cite the, the 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 passages. He just sort of gave a uh, an off the cuff recitation of it. But what he's referring to is, um, let's see, in Second Peter uh, chapter three and verse nine, it says, uh, yeah, sorry, Second Peter three nine. It says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if you look at this passage in context, what is being discussed here are the scoffers who are saying, that God's promise has failed because Christ has not returned. And Peter's response to that, let me get us back on screen here for a minute. Peter's response to that is, no, you misunderstand. The What seems to be the delay of Christ's second coming is not an act of God not keeping his promises, but it is revealing that God is extending the time so that more could be saved. And so God was not willing 
that any of the elect should perish, but that all of the elect should come to repentance. This is why he extended the time, because he's a merciful God, a gracious God, and he is going to provide the means for those to be saved uh, who would be saved, those whom he will effectually call. And so 2 Peter 3, 9, uh, when rightly interpreted, is neither is that uh, a defeater for the uh, doctrines of grace. And I do have uh, a, a, a short exposition of 2 Peter 3, 9 in my book. Uh, which responds to that objection. All right, let's go back to the message. It's the will of God that every person hear the gospel and believe the gospel and to have eternal life. It's, if it's the will of God that every person believe the gospel, uh, hear the gospel and savingly believe in it, then you must be espousing universalism, that everybody will be saved because God is powerful. He's sovereign. Is, his, it is, is it his will that every single person without exception be saved? Or is, is it his will that uh, those who are um, chosen by him before the foundation of the world to be in Christ, that, that all of those would hear the gospel and be saved, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slave and free? But some of God's children are always trying to find a way not to do the work God called us to do. And one way to eliminate our responsibility is that God already determined who's going to heaven. And our witnessing is not going to change it. But again, we don't know who those people are. This is this is talking about this is talking about a mystery of God's knowledge. We don't know. And so our task is to promiscuously preach the gospel. Christ gave us the Great Commission. And so we are to go and we are to teach all nations we are to baptize we are to teach obedience to all the commands of christ and so shame on us if we don't do that we should preach the gospel it's not any belief in election that keeps us in fact it's the belief in election that gives us uh, confidence that when we preach the gospel we will see uh, those whose hearts are changed by the hearing of the word and who will be drawn under Christ. God already knows who's going to heaven. God already knows who's going to hell. And all of my work and sacrifice and giving and all that is not going to change one thing, one iota. See, now don't you feel better? You don't have to do anything. Whatever will be, will be. I don't believe that. It's not the Bible. So you look here in the air. Since God has determined everything, whatever will be, will be. The truth. The Lord blames the people of Israel for their decision. To kill the prophets or to stone them was not the will of God. And he held them responsible for their decision. The words, how often what I have, shows that things could have been different. He held them accountable for their rejection. They could have made a different choice. Christ says, ye would not. He did not say, you could not. Verse 38 shows the result of their wrong decision. Your house is left unto you desolate. Look there in Romans in chapter 9, verse 21, here in your notes. Let's go to another passage, leaving Matthew 23. Let's go on to Romans uh, 9 and, what did he say, verse 21? We'll look at that. Not the potter power over the clay. 
same lump to make one vessel unto honor, another unto dishonor? What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he hath afford prepared unto glory. <coughs> now, here is the heir. God is the potter. We are the clay. Now, he did this a little bit earlier in this sermon, and it did bother me then. He, he speaks in a mocking tone about God being the potter and we being the clay, as if he's mocking uh, what is said here in Scripture. And I don't know if it's just his flesh is resisting so much. Uh, the the, 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 the um, presentation of the sovereignty of God over the sovereignty of man um, but but there's literal mocking of Scripture that seems to be taking place here. God has the right to do with the clay whatever he desires. The decision is not ours. We have no say in the matter. We cannot judge God. So whatever will be, will be. See there? God. Um, what exactly type of argument, what scriptural argument is he making against what Paul wrote in Romans 9. Now, I do think it's interesting that he tries to start in verse 21 because I think he realizes that but what comes before this in Romans 9 is very problematic for anyone uh, who would argue against the sovereignty of God in salvation or who would argue against election because everything that Paul says basically dismantles all the arguments that he's been putting forward. I've read a little bit of them, particularly verse 16. It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Romans 9 clearly says that God is sovereign in salvation. And then when Paul talks about God being the potter and we being the clay, that that's nothing to laugh at. That's nothing to mock. That's This is revealed scripture on the sovereignty of God and salvation. God is the potter, and we are the clay. So the potter can do with the clay whatever he wants. But God says in his explanation, yes, he is the potter, and yes, we are the clay. And he uses it as a great illustration there in Romans chapter 9. And he says that there are vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. So during our life, you and I, by the hand of God, are being shaped and molded. By your decisions, you're yielding to the Lord, and He's shaping you. Or you rebel against the Lord, and He's shaping you, based upon how you yield to God. So God says, because He's a God of love and grace and mercy. He's also a God of wrath and anger. So the vessels that harden themselves against the will of God, God says, these will be the vessels of dishonor. Notice by and the way, language those who harden themselves. Uh, we'll, we'll, anyway, we'll, we'll talk about this in a moment because his explanations here, again, aren't coming out of 
the previous context. And they're not coming out of the previous context. This is why he starts in verse 21 and doesn't read the previous verses. Is because it contradicts the exegesis that he's providing here. Individuals who choose to yield themselves unto the hand of God. The only way we will choose to yield ourselves to the hand of God, though, is if God changes our hearts. And again, there's completely lacking in this soteriology any treatment of the biblical teaching of effectual calling of conversion. God's going to shape and mold them into vessels of honor. So whether you are a vessel of honor or a vessel of wrath is your choice. In his theology, you change yourself, you change yourself, and then you allow God to shape you based on the fact that you sovereignly changed yourself, as opposed to the obvious meaning of Paul's illustration, and that is that it, it is the potter who, who shapes the vessel as he chooses the sovereignty of God versus the sovereignty of man. Um, let's see if there's a little bit more here. And we're going to, when he finishes up the, 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 uh, his words here on Romans 9, I want to look back at the context and then we'll need to bring this to, to a conclusion for now. I've got to get to my class, but uh, let's listen to just a little bit more and, and see if we can get everything in here on his comments on Romans 9. Uh, 21 and 22. By the decisions you make. See, when you accept Christ as your Savior, you became a vessel of the Lord. You accepted His will. You become His child. And even as a child of God, is it possible that a child of God can harden themselves to the will of God? So as a Christian, if you harden yourself to the will of God, stiff-necked, hard-hearted, that God can use you as a vessel to show his wrath upon. He can chasten you, discipline you. But if you as a child of God will yield to the Lord and do what God wants you to do in your life, then God can use you to demonstrate his blessings upon and his grace upon. God can use you. So you see, there's no problem in the book of Romans in chapter 9. Sure, he is the potter, and I am the clay, but how he works with the clay depends upon the will. Will you submit yourself to the Lord? And as a child of God, we should. And so God is going to deal with us. Okay, I'll, I'll stop right there. I think he's at the end. And let's see if we can just think about this for a second. So in his scheme, we have hardened clay, and then the hardened clay chooses to change itself into malleable clay. And then the malleable clay allows God, the potter, to shape it. Does that fit really, though, with what Paul is saying here? Um, can anyone think of clay changing itself on its own and then allowing the potter to shape it? Or is uh, the whole image about the potter being sovereign, taking the clay, and 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 uh, shaping it as he sees fit, and he doesn't talk about the vessels that are shaped for dishonor. Also, he completely overlooks that. I mean, if you look at the context here in Romans nine, it starts in verse seventeen, 
For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show thy power, my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. So he used the illustration of Pharaoh in Exodus about how God raised up Pharaoh, an ungodly man, would oppose the release of the Hebrew uh, slaves from bondage in Egypt. And uh, then he says in uh, Romans 9, 18, um, so he raised up Pharaoh for his own purposes. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will he hardeneth. Whom God wills, he hardened. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the point is, God is sovereign over those who are left in hardness of heart uh, through their fall, the fall into sin, through their um, inheritance of original sin uh, and their actual transgressions, those who do not seek God, those who have no righteous, do nothing good, those he hardens. For his own purposes, and this in raising up Pharaoh, it was to show his glory and his power in the release of the Israelites from bondage. And then, uh, after making this note that God sovereignly has mercy on whom he will, and whom he wills, he hardens or leaves in a hardened state. And he says in verse 19, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? And so Paul is anticipating here, his diatribe method, those who would say, well, why should the sinner be blamed? Why should Pharaoh be blamed? He simply had a hardened heart. Um, and so uh, here's Paul's response. Verse 20. Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed Say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? He didn't, um, Pastor uh, Anderson didn't, or Arnold rather, didn't deal with that verse. Um, can we think of the, the ludicrousness of the, of the clay saying to the potter, why did you make me this way? In his scheme, though, the hardened clay changes itself. <laughs> um, uh, Paul says, is the clay going to say to the potter, why did you make me this way? And then he says in verse 21, hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction that he might make known the riches of, the, of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath before, which he hath, uh, which he had before prepared unto glory. And so this, this whole analogy of Paul's is exactly the opposite of what Pastor Arnold would suggest. It's about a sovereign God who has afore prepared some vessels for glory who has elected, has chosen some for glory. Now, there is even a debate among Calvinists as to how God acts towards um, the reprobate. And there's a view that's double predestination. He not only elects uh, and chooses those who would be saved, but he chooses 
uh, or damns the reprobate. Another view, drawing upon other scriptural passages, says he simply uh, leaves them to their own devices. Um, he allows them to go their own way. It doesn't talk about his active work in hardening, although that's the language, the illustrative language that Paul uses here. But Romans 9, 21 and 22 is obviously a very difficult passage for the Arminian because it speaks so clearly of the sovereignty of God in salvation. Well, friends, uh, I think we've run out of time. We're going to bring things to an end here. I hope this has been helpful. Um, I think we've got about 12 minutes to go. So there'll be one more episode, God willing, uh, of covering um, this a sermon, reviewing this sermon by Pastor Yankee Arnold. For some reason, I wanted to call him Anderson today. Uh, 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 anyway, the A, at least it starts with A. Anyways, hope this has been helpful. Look forward to speaking to you in the next episode of Word Magazine. Till then, and may Lord richly bless you.